What is going on everyone? This is Miles with Windows Central Gaming and welcome to the 78th episode of Xbox Chatterdays. Today, I am stoked to be joined once again by my unofficial co-host, Samuel Tolbert of Windows Central. Sam, or as I like to call you, Sammy T. How are you doing on this fine Saturday, my dude? Slightly not as good now that you call me that. You know you're the only person allowed to do that, right? Like, no one else is allowed to use that nickname. You don't no like... Okay. You don't like no, Sammy no. T. You, you, no, you specifically, in the singular, <laughs> get a pass. That's it. That's it. I'm uh, doing well, man. I'm good, good. Um, I'm excited to have you on. It's been a week. It has been a wild week. Yeah. There have been some huge developments. We're going to be diving into a a whole mess of topics. And a lot of these topics have... As you've seen, if you've been on Twitter, dominated the discourse. We're going to be diving into a shocking mid-gen price increase. We're going to be talking about our favorite announcements from Gamescom 2022. We're going to be talking about wild acquisition rumors, whether they're true, whether they're not. We're going to be talking about Saints Row, Homeworld 3, and so much more. But before we get into all of that, for the amazing people watching live on youtube.com slash windowscentralgaming or listening on audio services, if they don't know, which I'm sure everyone at this point does, let the folks know who you are and where they can find you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they know at this point. There's just <laughs> no way. If you are somehow a newcomer, welcome. If this is your first time listening, because that's the only way. Uh, my name's Samuel Talbert. I'm a freelance writer over at Windows Central and its sister sites. Joined the network along the same time as Miles, and he and I have kind of, you know, risen together. We, we've been together <laughs> on this interesting journey. Yes. Uh, he's just a lot better at podcasting than I am. Oh, well, thank you. I, I always appreciate having you on. I know you've been on frequently a lot lately but i just really like our nuance i like our conversations i like that we can tackle the harder subjects without it getting too saucy too spicy but we can still have a little bit of fun with it a little zest and that's that's what we're gonna do today because there is a lot to get into there is a lot of stuff that i'm really excited to talk about and let's start off with a a wild roller coaster of drama that happened early yesterday morning so on Friday morning, I woke up and I saw a bunch of conflicting tweets about the latest acquisition rumor. Basically, what is it? Uh, GL, good luck, have fun, reported that Amazon was going to announce that it was acquiring EA sometime yesterday. So I saw that tweet. I was like, oh my God, EA is getting bought by Amazon? That's wild. And then I saw other people say, nobody else has heard that. That's probably not happening. I don't know where this report is coming from. And so there was this clash between social media accounts online and then USA Today, which is basically the parent company of GLHF, came out and said that the source and the original report did not meet their editorial standards and that the source was not properly vetted. And this caused a, a huge spike in the stock market when this was going up. A lot of people were investing in EA ahead of this. And then once it came out that this maybe wasn't true, those stocks declined. So this particular rumor did have a lot of weight on the conversation and the financial weight of EA in general. So, Sam, I was asleep during all of this. So like I said, I woke up and all of this had already played out. I was like catching up after the fact. But you were awake. You were up. What was it like watching this roller coaster unfold? 
it was annoying because at first it's like, oh, this is huge news. I got it. We got to start writing it. So what we did, obviously, is we weren't going to write up just the report that it could happen. Discussed it with Matt Brown, our editor, who was awake at the time. And was like, hey, get an announcement prepped. That's how a lot of this stuff works. Sorry to talk about how the sausage is made. But like so much <laughs> of games journalism is prepping stuff. I, I'm not even kidding. It, it's ridiculous. And prepping this, doing research, seeing like, okay, here's why Amazon might have done it. Here's why they might not. And then waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and then, you know, a couple different people come out and say, hey, talk to some EA employees, doesn't seem like this is happening. And then we had the whole drama happen with, you know, the stealth edit, I guess you would call it, on the article at first, and then USA Today coming out and saying it didn't meet their standards. It, mm -hmm. So it was an annoying roller coaster. To, to say the absolute least. I, I We still don't really understand why that happened in the first place. Um, but I, because I don't know their editorial standards. I don't know how their vetting works. I don't know any of that. I don't have, in, you know, that kind of firsthand info. But it seems like someone made a mistake. It, that, that feels pretty safe to say. Or somebody got mixed information. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, as you touched on, USA Today basically through this team and that original port just mm -hmm. report completely under the bus. They said, yeah. you know, this doesn't meet our stand. This got our guidelines when we've had anonymous sources reputably cited in the past. So I, it wasn't necessarily that this was an anonymous source, I think being the main issue. I think it's the fact that there was conflict between other reporters who've reached out to folks at EA to say, what's going on? Is there any truth to this? And even Jason Schreier has come out and said that, he doesn't know definitively that this isn't happening. He just hasn't heard anything from anyone who's previously been in the know with these types of conversations. Right. And we've heard other analysts and journalists echo the same sentiment. So either no one knows this, this leaker is the head of EA himself reaching out and saying, yo, dog, just, just want to shoot you a DM, let you know what's going down. Or there was some mixed messaging here. But either way, it led to a lot of interesting conversations yesterday sure. morning so sam do you think there's a world where amazon scoops up a big publisher like ea i do and i think the reason that i didn't immediately doubt it that a lot of people didn't immediately doubt it is because it makes sense miles because this isn't out of the ordinary well one we live in a world where big publishers can now be bought we've seen uh -huh. that twice now more recently earlier this year with microsoft and the ongoing process of activision blizzard but we've seen other stuff the reports of ubisoft and how maybe kind of sort of possibly they're up for sale and tencent getting involved and the, the the sony square enix rumors i think are just never going to die no matter what happens <laughs> those will still be going even after they actually buy them you know that's just how it's going to be so I think it does make sense. Um, if it, this had been something like Google is going to, I wouldn't have believed it for a second. But Amazon is not Google. Google has been in gaming, as they are with, frankly, everything they do, very shy. You know, dip a toe in the water with Stadia. Oh, oh, it, do it doesn't look good. We actually have to spend money to do this. No, we're not. We're not going to. We're not going to bother creating a first party. We're not going to bother. Jade Raymond, go off. However, Amazon, despite burning a lot of money, isn't pulling out they've stayed in it for i think 14 years now at this point is how long the amazon games brand has been around uh, not 100 on that but they've been around for a good minute you know they bought double helix that was back in 2014 and then turned them into amazon games mm -hmm. they founded a couple of other teams they've had far more misses than hits 
uh, Breakaway being canceled. Remember Crucible, which was on oh, Steam yeah. for like a month and then it oh, got pulled. Yeah. yeah, Crucible is so weird. Crucible's funny. Uh, I, I feel like people who did play Crucible are like modern myths. You know, it's like, what was it like? You played this thing that was just out there for a moment and then it's you, gone. It's it's the same idea as the people who played the Fabled Legends early access. Right, were, exactly. They, they, there were a contingent of people who actually got to play that mythical game before it was right, just gone into right. the ether. Yeah. Um, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, so as you touched on, it doesn't sound that unheard of for Amazon to announce the acquisition of someone like EA. They have their Amazon Luna. They're getting into cloud gaming. They are looking for compelling exclusive content and buying a big publisher is an easy way to quickly fill the gaps because as a lot of these big tech companies have learned, it is hard as hell to build up an established base of teams and IPs from the ground up and roll out exclusive content. That takes years and years and years and not a lot of the companies either want to or have the capital just to sit by and not make money for five years on this division. So coming in, buying someone like EA and having all of their titles as part of your ecosystem is a smart play. And not a lot of companies can do that. Microsoft with Activision Blizzard King, um, you know, not, I don't really think a PlayStation or a Nintendo has the raw capital to be like, boom, $69 billion. We're just gonna yeah, do no. it. It's, it's, it's a lot of money. It is a absurd amount of money to spend on an acquisition. And only the giant tech giants have that capital to do so. So it would make sense that an Amazon would potentially target an EA. And with all of this, we've seen acquisition rumors for a long time circling EA, Ubisoft, you mentioned PlayStation and Square Enix. A lot of these big publishers ever since Bethesda and ever since Activision Blizzard have been in the rumor mill in terms of who is gonna buy them. Are they up for sale? And who's gonna scoop in and buy this publisher. So of the big ones right now that are in those rumor conversations, who do you see as the most likely next scoop? The thing is, th this is, this is tough. This is really tough because I think a solid case can be made for and against every single one of them. Mm -hmm. I, I genuinely do. I, I, all of them have different things going on. So that being said, if we are talking about full acquisition, we're not talking about a hefty like chunk of stock, be like a 20, 30% investment or a minority stake of stock to keep the company going. We're, we're talking about like new party comes in, swoops in, your mind now will be taking that. Like that's what we're talking about. I do think it's Square Enix, honestly. <gasps> oh Just my looking, goodness. Looking at the overall ecosystem, looking at what they've got, looking at what has missed versus what has hit, looking at how they shed Square Enix West, that process just completed uh, yesterday. Embracer Group has officially acquired uh, Crystal Dynamics, Square Enix uh, Montreal, and then and then Eidos Montreal. You know, so they those three studios and all that IP, that's theirs now. Qu quick aside I, I, on that front, did you yeah. see what the Square Enix store is listing all of those uh, studios titles at on their shop oh yeah there is a yeah for anyone who hasn't seen this there is a fire sale <laughs> going on right now like if oh, you do not man. own some of these old square enix or even recent actually square enix west games go go check it out because they are 
they're like come and pillage like it's 99 yeah 90 percent off or stuff like marvel's avengers and tomb raider on the square enix website they as soon as that deal was done they're like rid this from our warehouse we never want to see this stuff ever again yeah i'm not sure if it's Ooh. on the digital storefronts as well as square enix direct but like yeah so so go go check that out it's wild it's absolutely wild. Anyway, continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. So I just, I think when you look at all of the factors, I think there are slightly more ticks in the Square Enix category going on. But I would emphasize, I think a case can be made for and against all of them. That's yeah, just the it's, world we live in now. Realistically, when it comes to acquisitions, the most likely targets are the ones who are struggling to be financially sustainable because it is hard investing money into projects, having them all pay off, managing the timelines for all these projects and budgets for all of these different titles is incredibly difficult. And sometimes you have an off year, you have two off years, you have three off years in a row, for example. And as we touched on earlier, there's a lot of time that goes into releasing a game, years and years and millions and millions of dollars. And if you have a couple of misses back to back, you find yourself in a situation where you are struggling you pay for the next project. You are struggling on how to, fig how to figure out what your next move is going to be. And so Square Enix, as we've seen time and time again, um, they have talked about games not meeting expectations. They have talked about their games not performing in the ways that they want them to. And when you see them sell off Western divisions to make themselves you know, healthier, that raises some questions. We do know that with the sale of Eidos, Crystal Dynamics, etc. that Square right now is not in debt. Square right now has a surplus of money. And if right. you have a surplus of money, like you said, that falls into a camp of, okay, well, they don't really need to sell immediately. If they have a surplus of money to invest, they don't need to sell right now. But on the other hand, if you don't have any debt, that also makes you a more appealing target for an acquisition. Because if you are a company that is hundreds of millions of dollars in debt, that is a factor when a company is coming in to buy you. We know Bethesda was in a similar situation. They were struggling financially. They, Fallout 76 didn't hit. Their games take, as we know, years and years to develop. Yep. So they were in a situation where they were figuring out what the right move was going to be, what the best move for the health of this publisher and all of these teams were going to be. And that is why, you know, having this conversation with Microsoft made sense. So... I do agree of all of the big ones right now, I would probably personally say Square or WB um, would be WB is weird. Not, not to derail us too much, but WB is very weird because they're in such a bizarre situation. They had very few games released from 2017 to this year, to 2022. Mm -hmm. I think they only released two games. Correct me on that if I'm wrong. Like, uh, up until this year with Multiverses and now Gotham Knights coming out. Before that, it was just in 2017, they had uh, Shadow of War. And then in 2019, you had Mortal Kombat 11. Was there I'm that much of a gap? Dude, like, some of those teams have not put out a game in a very long... Oh, no, no, you know what? Injustice 2 was 2017 as well. My mistake. So, three... Okay, but still, three games in four years in five years like not, what is impressive. going on there but but at the same time now you look at them and multiverses is just a ridiculous hit 
absolutely massive. We don't know what's going on with Gotham Knights, but, you know, Suicide Squad is coming from Rocksteady, so that's probably going to be a hit if it does well. Hogwarts Legacy, without getting into all the conversations around that game, that thing is going to be a hit. You know, yeah. Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker Saga, that was a WB's in a very weird position. I don't actually know what to make of them right now. The, the whole WB thing is a mess just outside of the game sphere the whole yep. warner discovery merger as we're seeing with them being unable to put out mo more than two movies this year because they don't have the money to do so there's a lot of moving pieces the game side has consistently come out and said that we have our stuff figured out we're not laying anyone off none of our projects are being canceled or delayed um so it seems like there's this hard division between warner discovery all of that assets, and then the gaming division, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment. And so it is complicated, and it makes me wonder, you know, what, what the plan moving forward is for the games division. Is it just going to be this, this healthy pillar of Warner, or is Warner in an effort to consistently streamline and recoup the mess that they're in currently? Are they going to sell that off to get some capital going? And so... That is the reason I think Warner would be considered as a way to help co course correct the, the situation that's happening on the film and television side of things. But the acquisition conversations right now are fascinating because so much of, the, so much of it is a possibility. You could really say any big tech company is buying any big publisher and it would not be completely outside the realm of possibility. Um, we're, as we've seen with Saudi Arabia, we have countries now just coming in and investing huge amounts of money into the games industry. So there's money to be made, which means people are going to invest. And inflation is high, inflation. which uh, leads into something else we're going to be talking about in a bit. Yes. Like that segue. Inflation is definitely a factor to consider. And uh, we're going to be diving deep into one particular platform holder's stance on inflation and and the moves that they felt they had to make to um, stay healthy. But before we do that, quick shout out to all the amazing people joining us live. If you are digging the show, hit the like button, share it out. If you are listening on audio services and you're digging the show, leave us a review. I'm gonna get to some super chats. First up, Nick W says, hi guys, what are your top five favorite horror games? Pick only one game for each series? Oh dang, top five horror games on the spot, Sam, go. Oh, dang. Uh, only picking one from each series is going to make this difficult. All right. So when I pick one from a series, I'm going to have to let it represent more games from that series. That's just how we're going to have to roll this. Uh, off the top of my head, Dead Space 2 immediately. took it's, it's the perfect blend of action and horror. Game of the generation contender in the 360 and PS3 gen. Uh, honestly, recency bias is here. Resident Evil Village. I think it is a brilliant game. I think it builds well on what Resident Evil 7 did in translating Resident Evil to a first-person formula, but it injects a little bit more humor, a little bit more of that classic Resident Evil cheese. Mm -hmm. And come on, it's like, it's gothic. It's vampires. It's it's werewolves. It's like, come on. what what? It's hammer horror. Like, I have such a soft spot in my heart for that. Dark Horse Contender, Alien Isolation. Ooh, I think that is a ooh. very underrated game. It's a little too long. That's the only bad thing I can really say about it. Uh, well, and that it never got, like, current-gen updated, because that thing would sing on current hardware. But mm. I digress. Imagine the ray tracing with the fire effects and the alien. Like, it, it, can't go down that path. Alien Isolation is a brilliant game. Incredible horror. Um, Just, yeah, very, very well done. Let's see. 
I did well with the first three. Now I'm stalling out hitting four and five. I know it's tough being put on the tough. spot. It's, it's Nick's tough. putting not, us on the spot. Come on, yeah, man. Not, not being able to pull more than one from a franchise because, mm. like, obviously there's some others. Uh, let's see. What is there? What is there? Okay, you know, okay, so this one's debatable. This one's very debatable, and if someone says that's not true horror, I hear you, but I'm on the spot, so here we go. I'll say Alan Wake. I think Alan Wake, while not as pure horror as the others I just mentioned, I think it does... Oh, I'm sorry if you can hear my cat. He's decided (laughs) to say hello. Hey, Blue. I know, I know, buddy. I'm sorry about that. Uh, You have been fed. Come on. Come on. Apologies. Uh, but Alan Wake has incredible writing. You know, it does pull from Stephen King. Like people, uh-huh. obviously, that's the comparison they use. But I do think it has its own identity outside of that. And it tackles. I know the whole depressed writer thing is such a trope. Like, it's not even funny. I get it. I am the living embodiment of that <laughs> trope. I am because I am a depressed writer. But Alan Wake, it, it tackles those kinds of feelings in a way that hit really hard. I really enjoyed playing the remaster. I cannot wait for Alan Wake 2. Uh, can't wait one of my most anticipated games yeah dude oh number number five number five you're killing me five you're killing me me with no duplicates you're killing me this was a good question by the way this was a darn good super chat question so so shout out there uh okay um another of those you can debate whether this is pure horror and that's fine but on the spot i'm gonna have to say bloodborne I think Bloodborne, Bloodborne is a phenomenal hey. mixture in terms of how it takes, you know, the Souls formula, you know, the Souls like, and it really ramped up the aggression. It's like, no, you're not defending yourself. There's two shields in here. One of them is a complete joke. You're not supposed to use it. There's actually one shield. Don't use that other one. You know, just, and if I could encapsulate Bloodborne in a single word, I think that word would be dread. Bloodborne is one of those few games that really makes you both anticipate and dread what is coming next. Because the further you go down this rabbit hole, you realize there is just so much more going on. And I don't think... I mean, the atmosphere in Bloodborne is untouched. I mean, come on, the, those gothic skylines, the towering... Like, we, we took Edinburgh at a foggy night and cranked it up to 300% and just... And then when the Veil of Mystery actually is revealed and you see what's really going on and that tonal shift from gothic to cosmic horror come on phenomenal so so yeah on the on the spot without being able to do duplicates and really think about this those are my five yeah bloodborne again it is an action rpg but that being said it really embraces those horror elements and when you see a lot of these enemies and these boss fights or at least for me i was scared you know, you turn a corner and you see something you didn't expect, you wouldn't expect, you've never seen before, and you're like, what on earth is this? I'm afraid to battle it because I don't know what it's going to do to me. And so, again, dread is an excellent word because it puts you on edge. Every single enemy, every boss fight puts you on edge. And as with any great horror title, that's the goal, to keep that sense of unease persistent. And Bloodborne does an amazing job of doing that within the realm of the, the Souls formula. All right, my turn. I'm going to hit you with a bunch of twos. Fatal Frame 2, Dead Space 2, Silent Hill 2, Resident Evil 2, and then fifth, just for a fun curveball, because I don't think this game gets nearly enough love on the streets, Hunter the Reckoning. Again, maybe not a traditional horror game, because it's very action-centric, but it is 
quintessential early 90s the in, or early 2000s the industrial soundtrack the leather dusters the biker so much of that game just screams early 2000s energy in such a cool way and it's got some of my favorite video game boss fights of all time so hunter the reckoning absolutely love it it's one of those franchises that i think is ripe for a reboot a comeback in some way and it's it's a little bit weird to me that nobody has looked at it especially in today's climate and landscape with all of these reboots and remakes kind of popping up from really obscure franchises hunter the reckoning is the one that needs to come back let's go man that is a name i haven't heard in a while who even owns that right now who, who i want to say it's thq i think so but i'm gonna find out now because exactly you, you my interest i have not heard that name in a good minute, <laughs> dude that's a good shout out that was one of two games that I got on the OG Xbox. I had Halo Combat Evolved and I had Hunter the Reckoning. Both of those games I put in a dumb amount of time playing. So while you're fact checking that, a couple more super chats here. Hargeet Chani says, good luck to Amazon if they're trying to acquire EA. The FTC is already up their butts about several things. Um, yeah, Amazon, not a company that I trust in the same ways as Microsoft when it comes to bettering the lives of employees. Uh, we've, there's been the horrifying reports of, you know, drivers having to pee in cups to hit these quotas. Uh, there was the tornado incident where basically workers were not evacuated from a warehouse that was in a path of a tornado in, in a proper amount of time and employees died. So yeah, Amazon is not a company I trust with workers. So I would hope that anyone that they acquire, they get some heavy scrutiny for the for, for past behavior. Yep. Also, just to interject, I uh, looked it up. I would not have seen this coming. It's actually Paradox. Paradox, Paradox Interactive. Because the board game, which is, you know, the source material, White Wolf Publishing. Oh, okay. So there, so there you go. Although the game was published by Interplay Entertainment, which, as we know, was absorbed by WB Games when Interplay went kerfluff so interesting thing there i wonder if they'd have to work the rights out between the two of them but yeah uh if we're talking source material it's paradox Parad all right paradox where you at let's do it let's make it happen they are currently not handling the uh vampire the masquerade bloodlines too so they they got some issues on there yeah right yeah it's probably not their number one priority they're not trying to figure out how to bring back hunter the reckoning sadly yeah um, one more super chat here. Nick W says, I can see Amazon buying Sony. <laughs> we are going to dive into that here in a little bit. We're going to dive all into the current state of, of Sony and the, the conversation you're all, a lot of you are here. But before we do that, I want to talk about a couple games. We've been in a, a period where people are looking to the horizon. People are desperate. They're hungry for big AAA releases. We've heard time and time again that 2022 is slow for big AAA releases, and that's true. There have been plenty of games. There have been plenty of great, compelling games. And for me in particular, this year's just been perfect. I have zero complaints about the, the video game output this year. Again, I understand that, you know, a lot of my hyper-specific niches have been filled, so I'm satiated. Like I've joked about before, you give me Evil Dead the game, and you give me Elden Ring, and that's it. That's, that's 2022, and it's good. And I'm getting two Pokemon games in a single year. So your boy's fine. I got nothing to complain about. But that being said, objectively, the industry has been looking for a big AAA hit to pull everyone in, to get the conversations going. And as we know, a rising tide lifts all ships, Sam. 
And yep. the the video games industry needs a good rising tide right now. And I, I feel like Matt Piscatella, executive director at MPD, has been just saying every month, please, we, we need a big game. Please. I need a big game to track. <laughs> please, uh -huh. at retail. Because there was Elden Ring, which dominated for months and months and months. And then there hasn't been anything even remotely close. Not, not even a, a, per, a small percentage of that. So Saints Row. A lot of people are looking at Saints Row and wondering, is this going to have any sort of potential? Is this going to do anything? Is this going to be a big hit in any capacity? And reviews came out this week. The game also released this week. And um, it didn't set the internet on, or I guess I shouldn't say it didn't set the internet on fire, because it did set the internet on fire, just maybe not in the way that the publisher was hoping. So before I share my thoughts on this game and the overall sentiment surrounding the game, Going into this release, Sam, did you, as a player, care at all about the Saints Row reboot? Media, middle of the road, middle of the road. I, I was interested because I do want a big game to play. I am definitely in that category. But Saints Row has always been something I very, very casually enjoyed. Very back of mind, like not mm -hmm. the forefront of, oh, man, Saints Row, here we go. So this is not something that I was like chomping at the bit to play. It was yeah. more going to be, oh, if it really impresses everyone, all right, I'll bump it up on the priority list a little. If not, it can wait. Um, I, that, that's kind of where I fell. And I think a lot of people were in a similar camp where maybe the, the, the hype wasn't through the roof by any means, but if it reviewed well, there probably were a, a group of people saying, all right, let's go. I want a big, big game to play. I want a triple A game to play. Let's do it. Reviews came out and they were really all over the place. There were some positive reviews. Uh, Zach on our team over at Windows Central, he gave it a, a, a 3.5 out of 5, so a 7 out of 10. I saw some 8s out of 10s as well. Nobody, nobody gave it a 10 out of 10. It wasn't getting critical, overwhelming critical acclaim from anyone. But there were also a string of really negative reviews. Like we're talking 4 out of 10. Really, really shockingly low reviews for this game. And so the community is very hypercritical of this. And the reviews the day before the launch of the game, from what I saw on Twitter at least, killed a lot of the momentum that this game had for its launch. And I saw a lot of people who were morbidly curious or maybe passingly interested in picking this up see these reviews and say, I'm good. So a question for you and a question for the community here is if you are really excited about a game, do negative reviews damage the hype and deter a purchase from it? It depends on the context, and I know that's a cop-out answer. I know Cop-out, boo! But I, but I think there is a difference. I think there is a difference in get a game getting a lower-than-expected review, a 6, 5, 4, whatever, out of 10, and someone saying, yeah, the writing is trash. I can't stand this writing. Like, okay, maybe you're right, but I am more willing to be the judge of that myself. I am more willing to say, uh, okay, well, I liked what I saw of the writing, so let me check it out anyways. If someone says oh, but this game is crashing all the time, the performance is terrible, it's not well-optimized, it doesn't run really that great no matter what you have. That's much more objective. That is much yeah, more of just a yeah. basic fact, and I'm going to take that to heart very, very seriously. Yeah, obviously storytelling. Comedy is always a really big one in video games. People are very passionate one way or the other on comedy. 
uh, a sentiment I hear constantly when it comes to any video game that tries to be funny is the comedy in this sucks in quotes. And again, that's going to be up to the person to decide comedy in video games is hard because you don't, you don't get to control how the player interacts with a joke versus a TV show or a movie. Um, but that being said, yes, we've all played video games that have bad jokes and you roll your eyes and say, Oh God, here we go. And so comedy again in a video game is, is really tough. So I've been playing Saints Row. I attended our preview, the preview for Saints Row. I did not do our review of the game. I'm about 18 hours in so far. Um, when I did the preview, I didn't really do most of the story. And I touched on this in my review of Saints Row is I don't really care about the story of Saints Row. And I never have. <laughs> like, I've never been interested in the, the crime drama of it all. I've just been interested in the, the sandbox and the physics. When I first played Saints Row 1, I spent hours and hours and hours just diving in front of traffic because it was the first game where I remember like really loving the ragdoll and really being sold on ragdoll physics in a game. And that, that novelty to me was just amazing. And I really embraced that. So I didn't play much of the story. Did the first couple of the first few story missions, thought the writing was whatever. Uh, I also said in my preview, yeah, don't expect the writing to blow you away. I've done more of the main story and there is a genuine conflict between the dumb and the serious. And I was hoping they would just fully lean into the dumb as they've done in the past with Saints Row, th Saints Row the Third and just embrace that, the stupidity of it, the absurdity of it. But they tried to cater to both camps. So there's dumb moments, really dumb jokes. And then there are serious beats where somebody is talking about, you know, their family member dying or their, 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 their tough childhood. And that puts me at a conflict because I want to turn my brain off. When I'm playing Saints Row, I don't want to connect with the story at all. That's just my, I don't want to. And they're trying to force me to connect with the story. And so that is a big conflict for me in this. And that is one of my biggest criticisms is that they didn't pick a lane, quote unquote, when it comes to the tone of the game. The overall sandbox, I think is really fun. The physics are incredible. Everything is destructible. Everything splinters, everything breaks, your clothing, all of the, you saw in this video, if you're watching the video version, there's an ice cream hat and that jiggles back and forth as you move. So there's a lot of really impressive physics to it. That being said, even though this game was delayed by a year, there are a lot of bugs as well. Co-op. A big, huge selling point for me on this game is a pain in the ass to get going right now. There's a weird bug with the EULA licensing agreement where you have to accept the licensing agreement in the menu and then accept it within the game basically every single time you want to play co-op. If you're in a menu or if you're in a quest in any capacity, even if you're just, you're not even paused, you're just in your inventory menu. If somebody tries to join you or you send an invite, that doesn't work. So there are a lot of technical issues surrounding Saints Row. And that is, I think, the biggest criticism I have with it is when it works, it's fun. But there are some frustrating bugs that really put a damper on the overall experience. So I understand that not everyone wants to rush out and spend 60 bucks. And I, again, even though I'm having fun with it, um, I got a preview copy on PS5 and I bought it for Series X when it launched. I definitely wouldn't say this is a rush out and buy at $60 video game as it stands because it is a little rough around the edges. And I got to say, that's a little disappointing. Um, yeah. I, was, I was hoping Saints Row would 
I wasn't expecting it to be a groundbreaking experience that would fundamentally change the video games industry, but I wanted a big, dumb sandbox. And I was hoping that with the delay and my experience in the preview, which was the experience, again, we were playing on high-end PCs, so I didn't encounter a lot of bugs. The overall experience for me was quite polished. Um, but again, I only played the first four hours as well, which again, playing on Series X, first several hours of the game, Seem fine, seem tight. And then as you get deeper, you start to see the edges fray a little bit more. So again, a little disappointed. I wouldn't say it's the worst game. I, th I think that's a little dramatic of a take, but it is definitely uh, a fine game. If you're a, f I would say if you were a fan of Crackdown 3, if you could find the, the joy in Crackdown 3, you'll probably like it. If you were hypercritical of Crackdown 3, You'll, you'll, there's similar parallels between these two titles. Sam, you also played a game a little bit this week, and I'm curious to get your impressions on it, because there's been a lot of stuff at Gamescom, and we're going to be talking a lot about Gamescom, but you got to attend a preview for an RTS. And as Windows Central's quintessential RTS fan, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Homeworld 3. Yeah, so Homeworld 3. Homeworld 3 is interesting because this is a game that, in the words of developers, has essentially been 20 years in the making. You know, Homeworld and Homeworld 2 came out a long time ago. They they, they recently got remasters. There was a prequel spinoff called Deserts of Karak. But, like, th those games are old. That's just all there is to it. But they were very groundbreaking at the time because Homeworld has this fascinating concept. It's a very simple one, but it's fascinating. It's the idea that space is three-dimensional and that you can move in three dimensions when you're moving a ship around or when you're moving your, your troops around. And that, you know, like we've seen it in other media, you know, Ender's Game, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, both infamously used it, you know, the dimensions of mm -hmm. space versus naval thinking. But games haven't really done that. And for, for good reason. I get it. It's a complicated thing. It's a very, very complicated thing. But Homeworld 3 is using it to incredible effect. So for anyone who doesn't know, Homeworld 3 set thousands upon thousands of years in the future. The human race is not on Earth anymore. And the entire idea is you are trying to find a new home. Now, they're keeping the details of Homeworld 3's story very, 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 very shrouded right now. Intentionally, we don't know a lot of what's going on. So I, there's not even much I can try to spoil from my hands-on time. But I got to play two missions, and I was very impressed with how it controls. And also the fact that it's gorgeous. You know, this is, even the remasters definitely, while they look good, they're definitely dated. You can tell mm -hmm. they are updated re-releases of, you know, games that came out in the late 90s. That, that's all there is to it. There's just, there's only so much you can do with coatings of paint and whatnot. But Homeworld 3 is gorgeous. It sells the expansiveness of space. It sells how vast you are. Even your Titanic mothership, you know, which is manufacturing new ships on the fly is this living space slash war foundry. And it's huge. It holds tens of thousands of people. Even that just feels so tiny and small compared to the infinite nothingness of space. And you see nebulas and stars. It's, it's gorgeous. If you are a space nut like I am, if you like, like hard science fiction like i do you will absolutely be sold and another thing that homeworld 3 does that is very interesting is it adds something called an intuitive cover system and basically the idea behind that is all of your ships but mo most importantly your fighters your really tiny ships can use anything in space as cover 
if they're moved towards it. So in the second mission I got to play, which is the third mission in Homeworld 3's campaign, we played missions two and three, those of us who are at the preview, there are these pirate cruisers, and they're shooting missiles down you like a Death Star trench run in this massive, you know, megalith structure. And it's very difficult because you, if you approach them head on, you're just going to get shredded. Your missiles, the missiles are going to turn your ships into space dust. So what you can actually do is you can use surrounding debris, and your ships will automatically use that debris to take cover. And I didn't get to play around with it too much because it was just that one example. But according to the developers, this works with anything in the game. It works with asteroids. It works with other ships, even ships that have been most recently destroyed. Like if you assign a bunch of ships to guard a particular ship and then they get destroyed, it can still use their burning wrecks as cover. It's fantastic stuff. I really, really enjoyed it. It was a small, you know, presumed small slice of the game. So obviously this is not some expansive preview. And the game does have a long ways to go. Homeworld 3 does not have a release date. It's currently slated to launch, I think, in the first half of next year. So pretty wide window there, potentially up to almost a year, like 9, 10 months. But what I have played right now is very, very promising, and I cannot wait to see what the developers are doing next at Blackbird Interactive. So I'm going to ask you a two-part question here, because okay. I'll be up front. I'm not a big RTS fan. It's Sure. I, back in my, my PC heydays, I played a lot of stuff like StarCraft, Age of Empires. But in recent years, I've really struggled to connect with the genre. I've tried, attempted many titles, and I've just struggled to connect. So, two-part question. For you, as a fan of the genre, where do you think this game excels that others have, have failed? And for someone like me, who's not a huge fan of the genre, is there anything that would pull you know, more casual players in? Okay. So. To the first part of your question, what it excels at to me is control. It is the idea that you can do genuinely anything. It's, it's very difficult to visualize and trying to explain this, but because of the way the movement controls have been updated, it no longer uses the old disc-based system. If anyone here is a Homeworld veteran, they know what I'm talking about. That is an option, but you don't have to do that. There is a modern control scheme that actually uses the WASD keys, like, you know, other modern games and whatnot. Homeworld 3 emphasizes control because it just allows you to do anything. Like I said, you can assign a ship to guard another ship to guard another ship and just keep that loop going as long as you want. You can tell things to circle each other. The new cover system has to be seen to be believed. And you, the way you can move them through space gives a layer of control that I don't think I've seen any other game ever do. Because most RTS games, Miles, as you would know, playing StarCraft, I love StarCraft, they're two-dimensional. Yes. They're not operating in 3D, like everything. Age of Empires, uh, yep. even Total War, which I absolutely love. It's, it's two-dimensional, just you're moving them around. And yeah, you might have some things that fly, but flying is a nebulous concept, and they're, just, they're still moving around the map. They're just in the air. But this, this really messes with you. And one thing that the developers actually said that really got me excited is this is just a sample. In later missions, they want to really screw with players' heads in terms of, hey, what does it actually mean to be in 3D? What kinds of crazy things can we try to force you to do and force you to figure out? So that's what it seems to be excelling at to me, is yeah. actually evolving the concept of what it means to set a game in space as a whole. To the second part, I'll turn it around with a question. What kinds of games have you been bouncing off of? Because that will inform the next part. In terms of, of RTS? Yes, yes. I've tried XCOM. I've okay. tried Gears Tactics. Okay. Uh, those are some more recent examples. 
All right. Um, and usually it comes down to the hardcore commitment to the turn-based combat of, okay. of an RTS is usually the biggest hurdle for me to, to, to stay engaged. I like the real time. I like the action. So okay. that those are some recent examples of games I've tried. I especially gears tactics, huge gears fan went into that going, sure. all right, let's go. I can get it. I can, if an RTS is going to sell me, it's going to be gears tactics. And even that one, I was like, okay, well I tried. <laughs> okay. So the thing that I would sell you on is Homeworld is real time. This is not taking turns to move things and then your opponent gets to move things. This is all happening at once. You, everything you see happening, you click, your pilots start moving. You tell them to do something, they immediately start doing it. You're not waiting to think out your turn and hoping you made the wrong move. And everything is calculated, you know, appropriately based on the actual physical mechanics of the ships in, uh, that are being used. You don't, I'm trying to think of how to say this. It's it's not calculating, oh, and I love XCOM, I love Gears Tactics, but it's not, oh, 89% chance to hit because this guy is behind cover. It's like, no, it's you either hit or you don't. It's that simple. It, it literally it, yeah, it's like not you're a point blank with thing. your shotgun and it's yeah. 89% chance and you still miss. You're like, yeah, no, your, your, your short range fighters that are over here, they cannot hit this. When you move them here, they can. It's like that. So that that's how I would sell you on it. Okay, beautiful. And is there a grid that demonstrates the range of all your weapons, I assume, when you're when you're battling? Uh yeah, so there's a uh, a sensor sphere that you can activate which tells you like lots of different details in terms of objectives, but also that kind of data it can be read like when you select your ships, it'll say like they have short range weapons or things like that. Beautiful. Cool. Well, I'm I'm excited that you're excited because I know you are the the one playing Warhammer for us. You've checked out Homeworld 3, so I was really curious to hear how this was landing for you because it's been 20 years almost since homeworld 2 it's been yeah multiple decades in the last entry and in the late 90s early 2000s homeworld was a really big deal so i know a lot of people are excited about this this trilogy the the the, the final third entry you know maybe valve yep. will do the same and they'll wait 20 years between left 4 dead 2 and give us that trilogy one day but for the people in the homeworld camp they're they're getting that trilogy and so i'm stoked for them <laughs> um let me get some super chats here before we dive into the old meat and potatoes of the show today so again if you are watching the show live digging the show hit the like button share it out hargy chani says is playstation mostly selling the horizon ps5 bundle in the u.s effectively giving the U.S. market a $50 price increase as well? If so, they could have done that everywhere else instead of a price increase. Hargit, hold on to that question. Yeah. because We're, we're going to get into that. That is going to be the next topic here. Sergeant Rake says, you guys are effing awesome. Happy Chatterday to you both. Cheers, Aww. Sergeant Rake. Appreciate you. And then Nick W. says, you guys are awesome, but I have to go. All right, Nick. Enjoy your glorious weekend. Sam, Let's get into it. Let's get into arguably the biggest story of the week and a story that I quite frankly didn't really expect to be talking about this week. No, no, I'm I'm surprised. I I am genuinely surprised. In a random and major Thursday development, PlayStation revealed that it would be increasing the price of the PS5 in a host of markets, including Europe UK, Japan, China, Australia, Mexico. So basically, every major market 
except for the United States is getting a roughly, I think it's 10%. I think it varies from market to market. And Japan is the highest. I think Japan is like closer to 20%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, that's what I've seen. Japan is the worst by far. Australia isn't great either. Yeah, so it it is at least 10%, sometimes even higher for some of these markets. So two years into the launch of a new console, this is a very unconventional move. And PlayStation has cited economic challenges like inflation as the reasons that they, and correct me if I'm wrong, but felt, felt that they had, to ma- they had to make the difficult decision to increase the price of the PlayStation 5. And so as you've seen, if you've been online, people have thoughts on this. And this is a wild move. When Meta announced that they were going to increase the price of the Quest 2 by $100. People were like, what on earth are you doing? Are you trying to build momentum on something or are you trying to kill momentum on something? And there are a lot of people who are sharing similar sentiments about the PlayStation 5 right now. So Sam, (laughs) how are you feeling about this announcement? How did this announcement hit you from a gut feeling when you woke up and you saw this announcement. Disbelief at first. At first it was like, no, this is a prank. Someone photoshopped this. Someone did like an image mock-up. You can't trust people these days. They share all sorts of stuff. It gets out of control. Then I saw, oh no, that's that's the official PlayStation account. Okay, let's take a look. Uh, I, I'm, genuinely, I'm genuinely surprised. I'm genuinely surprised because this is unprecedented. I know there have been a tiny tiny handful of regional price adjustments in the past. I think the PS4 in Canada got a very small price increase in 2015. Not sure about the year, but I I think it was Canada where it briefly got bumped there. So there have been like one-offs. There have been weird nuances that have happened before, but it's usually based on uh, currency conversions. Like something happened with the currency, so they're readjusting to make sure it's back where it used to be. That's always been what that kind of thing is. Not we're going two and a half years, like going on three years into a generation, and then, oh no, we're just, the price is going everywhere up but the U.S. So I have three immediate thoughts, three immediate, and then we can we can sort of back and forth go into this once you give your thoughts as well, just sort of dive into the meat of it. But three immediate takeaways: one, I know the U.S. dollar is stronger than a lot of other currencies. I get that. I understand that. I do not believe that is the reason that they didn't raise the price in the U.S. Did it play Mm. a part? Sure, sure. I'm sure on paper, in the math, that the analysts who were actually paid to do this, and I'm not, were taking a look at, I'm sure it was a factor that the U.S. dollar is really strong right now. But y'all, I'm paying more for everything. Gas has, I think, come down a little bit, but it's still way higher than it used to be. Like, I don't like paying more for gas. Food is way more expensive. Milk is way more expensive. Like, We aren't immune to inflation. Inflation has been going up in the U.S. Uh Like, don't tell me that we don't have inflation over here, and that's 100% of the reason why they didn't raise the price. So that's one thing. Second thing, I really feel bad for people in a couple of markets, particularly Australia and Japan. Particularly Australia and Japan. Like, those two, it's it's really bad. Canada, it was already sort of bad. Like, it was already a very bad adjustment. So I think, weirdly, this isn't, It's just like, okay, yeah, it's a little more, but it was already, like, really bad, so whatever. (laughs) So that's the second takeaway. 
Third takeaway. This is short-term gain, long-term loss. And how effective this is and whether it works out for them is going to depend on just how short-term it is. So those are my quick three takeaways, but I want to hear your thoughts and then we can kind of, you know, dive into it. Yes, I have some big questions about this topic, but I'm in the same boat. When I saw this, I really couldn't believe it. We had people joking when the Meta 2 increased its price. I saw people online joking that PlayStation was going to be next. And I remember saying, no way. That would be such a ridiculous move. That would be such a damaging move to the momentum of a, a console launch. And here we are. They did it. PlayStation came out and raised the price in almost every single market. And that is such a weird and wild move. And as we've seen, placed, or Nintendo and Xbox have come out and commented on the situation after the fact. And basically, we're going to touch on this more, but they have said that they're not immediately going to raise the price. So neither one of these companies has an immediate plan to say, oh, shoot, PlayStation did it. All right, let's jump on board. Because as you said, they touched on inflation. They touched on inflation being one of the, the main factors. Yeah, I get it. Stuff is more expensive. Brother, we all get it, man. Stuff is more expensive across the board. I, I talk about the rent. I moved to an area of Colorado specifically from California because it was cheaper. And in two years, the average price of rent in my neighborhood has gone up about $700 per month. $700. My rent has gone up effectively $700 a month in two years. Yo, dog. Like, that is huge. And on top of that, groceries are more expensive. Gas is more expensive. I'm grateful I work from home, so I don't have to worry about the gas consideration, but I know a lot of people do. So, yes, things are more expensive. I get it. I also don't have billions of dollars. Your boy is not, your boy is not even close to that. Your boy is not even making a small percentage of billions of dollars. All right? So... I feel you. I place in that sense, PlayStation. I feel you, dog. And I wish I could just tell my landlord, "Yo, things are getting more expensive. Times are tough, so I'm giving you less rent." Sorry, that's just the due to the the economic situation, the global economic situation. You are getting less rent this month. Sorry, dog. It is what it is. But I don't have that luxury, unfortunately. So you touched on this a little bit. You touched on this a little bit. And I think this is a very interesting conversation. And this is going to be, in my opinion, the most interesting factor of this conversation for us in the U.S. Why? Why is US, the U.S. market the exception to this price increase? Everywhere else. Even China, Sam. Can you imagine mm -hmm. the depravity of telling the country that makes the PlayStation 5? You're telling all the people in China who are making this console that you are the market. We are increasing the price of this, but not the U.S. market. Why is PlayStation afraid to increase the price of the PS5 in the United States? Like I said, I'm sure the U.S. dollar still being very strong, being stronger than these other currencies plays a part on paper. But the bigger, more important part, and I think you and I agree on this, is because this is the market where PlayStation is neck and neck with a competitor. Mm -hmm. Where, according to Satya Nadella, you know, the Xbox Series XS have uh, outsold the PS5. I think, what was it, two of the last three quarters? Did, do I have that figure right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, or was it three yep. of the last four? Maybe or, yeah, three of the last might four have even been on... three of the last four. Yeah, might have even yeah, been it, that. it was the majority. It was like like more often than not, they are. And even when they're not, it's neck and neck. We see that in NPD where it's like, oh, PS5 is ahead in dollar sales, but Xbox was ahead in units or like, you know, vis-a-vis. It's, it's very, very tight. And I think PlayStation knows, Sony knows, that if they go up to 550 over here officially, if the, if that's what it is, because presumably, you know, being in line with the others, it would be a $50 increase. It's just a little too much, and it will, while not killing their sales by a stretch of the imagination, give the edge to Xbox. It'll give them an edge, and they'll be able to outsell them more, even more often than they are right now. I think that is ultimately the biggest reason. Yeah, and I don't want to downplay other markets. But sure. a lot of these companies put a lot of stake into the U.S. market. Sure. In terms of it's optics. only one market, but it's the biggest market. Exactly. There's a lot of money to be made there. So they are essentially subsidizing the cost of the PS5 for Americans, which I've seen a lot of people in other countries rightfully annoyed about that strategy because PlayStation, like you said, is in a situation where Xbox this time around is way, way more competitive. Not only are they competing on an equivalent level, as we just touched on, they are competing on a level that is starting to supersede PlayStation in some areas. And their, you know, their bread and butter, their console sales, the thing that they were banging the drum on last generation, the thing that they were putting all of their emphasis on in shareholder meetings, they're losing in the US. And when that is your, your drum that you're banging and you don't have that to bang anymore, that is a tough sell. And so this puts them in a very difficult situation. Sure, they could definitely increase the price in all markets to you know, be fair, have fair optics. But I think if they did that, they have a legitimate fear that there would be, that they would lose enormous momentum in the US market. Momentum that they could not regain. Because let's look at recent history. Last generation, the console that was more expensive and less powerful, things did not fare well for that console. As we've, we've talked about ad nauseum, the launch of the Xbox One was so damaging to the Xbox brand. And it was so damaging to Microsoft's investments into Xbox. And now we have PlayStation midway through the generation saying, all right, we understand PS5 has less features. We understand that the PS5, you know, is less powerful technically. It's got a fast SSD. Got that SSD. Um, but we're going to ask you to pay more than, than the competitor. Mm-hmm. And that is a tough sell. That is an incredibly tough sell. Uh, and so that really makes me feel that PlayStation felt pressured and obligated to keep the price in the US or completely lose the US market. Because as we've touched on again, they are losing momentum in the US market. So I, I got to ask, with, with all of this backlash, with this announcement, is there a world where PlayStation reverses this decision? Are they going to come out and say, all right, we, we hear you, we understand, and we are going to reverse the price increase? Or are no. they going to just say, sorry, this is what it is? No, or, or, or not in the short term. Let me say that. Not in the this month, not next month, not, not this year even. I would say 
next year different discussion that's a very different discussion that's an interesting discussion but i think in the short term this is not as comp or as uh, easy as like reversing oh sorry we were going to be increasing the price of xbox live gold but y'all made it very clear that that's uh not Shut happening. it down. No, 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 no. We're, we're sorry about that. Whoops. In fact, we're accelerating our plans and other, it, like, it's not the same thing because the subscription is something you directly control. It's directly at you. You know, you, you set that with, you know, increasing the price of a console. That's going to be hardware. That's not software. So it's a lot more complicated. There's different factors to consider. And also there's just way more regions and currencies to consider when it comes to that. So, no, I, I, I think in the short term, for the purposes of this year, or at least through November when God of War launches, this this is going to be here to stay. And so we got to talk a little bit about profitability, Sam, because PlayStation has announced, you know, record revenue right. the last couple of years. They've had tremendous revenue growth. That being said... Their last financial earnings reported some shockingly low drops in their profit. So it's not that they aren't bringing in money. They are just not making as much money as they want to be making. So right. when it comes to this price increase, we know PlayStation has announced that the PS5 hardware is profitable, that they make money when they sell a PlayStation 5. So do you think, because I've seen people say, you know, PlayStation's greedy, obviously, is the, the sentiment that a lot of people are saying online. Do you think this is PlayStation wants to continue making a profit on PlayStations? Or is this them trying to break even on selling PlayStation with this price increase? As with so many other things, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think the truth is probably oh, we'd still be making money, but wow, it's getting razor thin. It's it's not a margin we like. That is not a margin we like as a company when we were making this. It makes us very uncomfortable. What if inflation gets even worse? Because that could happen. That is a thing. Like, it, there's no guarantee that inflation is suddenly going to come down next month or suddenly going to come down the end of this year. Like, what mm -hmm. happens if it keeps on going up? We need to be prepared for that. We need to have something built in to adjust for that. So I think that's what it is. Is that greedy? I'm not going to be the arbiter of that word. But it is certainly an unwillingness to take on that loss on the company at this particular time. It yes. is certainly saying, oh, no, 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 we're not dealing with that. Everyone but the U.S., you're going to have to deal with that for us. My speculation is that PlayStation wants to maintain profitability on PS5s. They are not lying when they're telling you things are getting more expensive. That is, that is the reality. And they are using that fact to spin their consumer-facing fa consumer messaging about this, pointing to the things that we can all relate to, things getting more expensive. Well, we know, as I touched on, we, we all know things are getting more expensive. But as I touched on before, PlayStation has been banging the drum about console sales. And so your investors, your finance team, when you are saying we are selling a lot of PS5s and we are making money on PS5s, maybe some of the other question marks about the business model, about the profitability, maybe that dwindles away. But when there are question marks on every single aspect of your business model, that is harder to sell. But if you can maintain, all right, we get it. Things are getting more expensive. We need to maintain profitability on these PS5s. So we're just going to do a price increase. 
It's not going to be pretty. We're going to take a huge PR hit, but at least when we sell PS5s, when we release God of War, when we release those bank must play bangers, people are going to shell out the money and they're going to buy it. And maybe that's where the messaging is at. And it'll be, you know, up to the the customers to decide if that is something that they want to do and something that they want to support. But ultimately, I think that's where they're at is they want to maintain profitability on the PlayStation 5s. And it would have been nicer from PR optics if this was universal. It would have shown a little more confidence in the, the brand. But to have the U.S. exception, I think, is, as we touched on, the really interesting bit of all of this. Because it's it, telling. It's, it's very telling. It's, again, and this isn't to stoke console wars or anything like no, that. No. We know that's not part of the show. But it, to me, it shows that PlayStation is incredibly concerned about xbox's momentum so concerned that they are willing to take huge pr hits in every other major market except for the u.s to ensure that they don't lose the u.s so sam as we touched on again um following this announcement jez our good pal jez from windows central reached out to microsoft asking hey I know times are tough. Are y'all going to be increasing the prices? And Xbox was like, oh, our current plan is to keep the price in place as it is. But, you know, typical PR messaging. Mm-hmm. Nintendo had a similar sentiment as well. We don't have any immediate plans to raise the price of our devices. But both of them were very careful to say, to not say they would never increase the price of these consoles. The messaging was very, very specific and deliberate. And so I have to ask, is there any world where PlayStation or sorry, where Nintendo or Xbox has to follow suit here? Okay, I will answer this in two parts in reverse. So we're going to tackle Nintendo first, then we're going to go with Xbox. All right. Nintendo is not going to raise prices on the Nintendo Switch because Nintendo has almost never dropped prices on the Nintendo Switch. (laughs) Nintendo is still selling you the same hardware that they were selling you in 2017. The Uh fact is, the profit margin on the the Switch is thick. She's thick, I I promise you. They are are making some fat stacks. (laughs) Will they be making less fat stacks? Of course. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. But especially with the OLED, which cost only a tiny bit more to produce but had the $50 price bump for mm-hmm. you know the OLED screen and the you know the better kickstand and all that they're doing fine. They don't need to increase the price because they just haven't dropped the price. However, however, I think Nintendo's next console that's where things get interesting Ooh. because I don't think the price will be quite so low. They're no. not going to the, the Nintendo's next machine will not be $300. That's what I'll say right now. I think 350 is the minimum. I would not put 400 out of the equation. I think that is where it gets much more interesting for Nintendo. Is not what they have now, but what's around the corner? What's coming out, you know, late next year or early 2024? That's where things get interesting. Because Xbox, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say we know the Switch Pro or the Switch 2, whatever they want to call it, is coming. They've changed their sure. messaging. They are no longer saying that we don't currently have any hardware in development that that messaging is gone right and so we know it is coming soon and it will be interesting to see what that price point looks like so xbox microsoft i do not think they are going to raise prices 
with the current economic situation. With, you know, give it a little wiggle room. Inflation goes down a little, inflation goes a little more up. I think they'll keep it where it is. I think they are confident. I think Microsoft has obviously given Phil Spencer and the Xbox brand much more backing in the last couple of years than they have ever before. I think they will be willing to subsidize, even if they do end up selling some of it at a loss. They will be willing to subsidize in the short term and say, nah, it's worth the good PR. We don't want to raise prices. We're, We're good. We want to keep this momentum. I think they're leaving themselves some room because obviously if things get way worse, yeah. They might like if inflation does jump up. I don't know. I'm pulling a number out of my butt here. Another 30 percent in the U.S. Let's just something awful like that. If that happens. Yeah, guys, spoiler alert. They're going to raise the prices. Just it's going to happen. But we will have bigger things to worry about. I assure you. But yes, but prices will go up. Um, So that's what I think that is. I I think in the short term with where things are at right now. No, they will not. But they're going to leave the door open because they're not stupid. Yeah, I think both companies are controlling their controllables. You know, yep. all, as we touched on with the software, software side, the subscription side, you can control those things. Microsoft has a healthy subscription model right now with Xbox Game Pass. Xbox Gold as well has been established. So they have a lot of monthly revenue that can help them take the hit on the console. Because probably with inflation, they're probably not making money on these consoles. Or if they are, it's next to no money. Maybe they're breaking mm-hmm. even. And so I think they understand that. They understand what the situation is, and they're just going to take that hint. So I totally agree that unless something catastrophic happens, and again, as you touched on, if that does, my God, that will be the least of our problems. But if something catastrophic does happen in that camp, then yes, they are leaving the door open to say, all right, sorry, you know, things are worse. Things are worse than we anticipated. We're raising the price. But again, unless things take a dramatic turn, I think both Nintendo and Xbox will actually use this to their advantage. And I think there are probably conversations behind the scenes where Xbox is looking like, how how can we sweeten the deal really fast? How can we immediately elevate the value proposition of the Xbox? Because moving forward, moving into next year when they roll out that Xbox friends and family plan on Game Pass, they are going to lean into the value so hard and they're going to rub the value of Xbox in the face of PlayStation so aggressively. And so it really makes me interested to see what the next year looks like now that we know PlayStation, at least in the short term, is increasing those PlayStation 5 prices. Um, Circling back to Hargeet's super chat here. I've seen some other folks like Yang Ye comment on this as well. So in the U.S., the PS5 that's mostly available is the Horizon bundle, which is more expensive. They're using that software to subsidize the price of the console. Right. Do you think they could have, on the other markets where they are increasing the price, do you think they could have done something on the software side to sweeten that blow? Say, hey, we understand that it's going to be more expensive. Here's this game for free. Or here's this for free. Here's a few months of PlayStation Plus Premium so you can try out our brand new sexy subscription service do you think they could have done something in that regard the the game bundle no i think the game bundle like yeah it is more expensive but you are getting a game with it like yeah it's a little cheeky because that bundle is way more available in the at least in the u.s i don't know about everywhere else but at least in the u.s and the uk those two markets that bundle is what's easy to find uh the, the regular ps5 and especially the digital still very hard to get a hold of but you can get that horizon bundle 
pretty darn easy if you're keeping an eye out. Uh, so I, I don't think so. However, the PlayStation Plus, yes, that would have been brilliant because that leaves that brings me to another point rather, and that is ecosystem. I'm not the bean counter over at PlayStation. I'm not their financial analyst. They have people who are paid more money than I will see, much more money than I am paid to figure these things out for them. But in the short term, they probably think, okay, we'll lose X amount. We'll lose a small, tiny amount of PlayStation 5 sales, but it'll be more than made up for with this price increase. Okay, that's what okay. they think in the short term for the duration of this year. I think next year is a very different discussion for a lot of reasons, but this year, that's what they think. Why not just write off three months of PlayStation Plus Premium? Why not just say, hey, you know, because that... that Consoles have always included like a sample subscription to try. That's a yeah. long honored tradition. So why yeah. not just up it? Why not say, oh, instead of a month of regular PlayStation Plus, you get three months. Yeah, like, yeah, we raised the price. But look, three months of our best service. You can come in and try Horizon Forbidden West with a trial. You can play God of War or, uh, the you know, The Last of Us Remastered if you miss those games or all these Ubisoft games or Assassin's Creed Valhalla. I think that would have been a brilliant idea. I, I think that would have been an excellent idea because it is just a subscription. It's not costing them anything. And then how many people do you get hooked on that subscription? Maybe some of them cancel premium, but I'm willing to bet a lot of them wouldn't. I'm willing to bet a nice chunk of them were just, okay, yeah, I like premium. I'll just yeah. keep it there because people let subscriptions recur. That's how it works. That's mm -hmm. why subscriptions work is you forget about it. It goes to the back of your head and you don't remember to use it. Like me with a couple of things that I had to recently cancel. You know, just that, that's how it is. Paramount Plus. Um, yep. <laughs> I that that was the one. That was the one. I think that would have been a brilliant idea. I I, I think that would have been a great idea to sort of not not take it away because the PR still would have been bad, but it would have shown some willingness, right? It would have shown some willingness. And like with so many other, not to not to broaden this conversation too much, but with so many things at PlayStation that I think have been perceived issues, rightly or wrongly, it's about the perception. It is about yes. willingness to yes. compromise a little bit. It's like, okay, show me a tiny sacrifice in good faith, and it makes this bitter pill, however right or wrong it is, a little easier to swallow. I don't know. That's my two. There's been this clash between, I mean, console wars aside, there has sure, been this sure. clash between Xbox and PlayStation's messaging. Xbox, value, 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 value. We want you to spend $300 on a console and $10 for Game Pass, and you can play hundreds of dollars. For $310, bucks, you are in the Xbox ecosystem with hundreds and hundreds of games. PlayStation now feels like it's on the polar opposite spectrum. You're going to be paying more. Our games are $70. And so now in some markets, if you're buying one new premium PlayStation game and a PS5 with a disc, dog, we're at $800. And that's not even if we're talking about, oh, I want to have PlayStation Plus as well so I can play this game online. We are getting close to a $1,000 purchase for a household to get a PlayStation 5 and let's say, God forbid, one controller. That is not a good value. That just really is not a value where... Xbox just feels like they are just hammering into that. And again, they have the leverage to do so. They have an objective advantage to lean into that value sure. where PlayStation just can't. But like you said, with this price increase, bro, you couldn't hook it up with some PlayStation Plus and then swing it to be like, all right, we understand that this is a, a price increase, but with PlayStation Plus Premium, you can now get in the door and at least play 
a, a huge selection of games. But even though you're paying more upfront, we're saving you the money on your Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, your, Better your value. Horizon. Yes. Better value Lean, they are not embracing a value at all. They are saying this is a premium product with a premium price point, and our games are the best. So you're going to pay for it, essentially, is their messaging. And while PlayStation objectively has put out amazing games that people have been more than willing to just dedicate you know, an entire console to, they're rushing out to buy these games day one, I just, I'm so baffled that they're just really doubling down on that approach when their competition is running with that value equation during a time where families across the board are looking and trying to figure out how to save money. It is just baffling to me that this is PlayStation's strategy right now. And I got to ask, and again, this isn't trying to be inflammatory for the sake of being inflammatory, no, no, but no. is this a sign that PlayStation is struggling? Should we be concerned about the future of this platform with, with moves like this? Struggling is a strong word, is the way I'm going to choose to answer that. Facing a lot of different challenges that they haven't had to before, yes. I, I absolutely think so. PlayStation is caught in the middle of adapting. They're trying, and, they're, and PlayStation is trying to figure itself out right now. Like, PlayStation is trying to figure out, okay... We have our big single-player games that we're critically acclaimed, commercially successful. We scratch it in Nintendo numbers with these things. But also, these take four or five years to make, and mm -hmm. we need live service revenue. So, okay, we're going to get Bungie, we're going to get Destiny 2 now, but, like, we need other live services. Oh, we need to do subscriptions as well, but we don't want to sacrifice our games. Like, oh, th there's a lot of different things they're trying to figure out right now. And I think they're facing a lot of challenges, and... The market is going to inform them very, not very quickly, but quickly enough in the next couple of years about which of these things work out well and which of them don't. Because the thing is, you know, in the short term, talking about this year, PlayStation is looking at this and going, yeah, we can do this because Xbox, you know, Starfield isn't launching this year. Redfall isn't launching this year anymore. Both of those games are in the first half of 2023 now. They do have some games, but... As much as I absolutely am looking forward to both of them, Grounded Story Mode and Pentiment, I don't think you can put on the same, like, scale as Starfield and Redfall. Yeah, it's like, I it's not going to be the same even thing. If you, even, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm really excited for Grounded. Oh, but I, I'm really excited I for both. I can't wait for Pentiment. But nonetheless, they're looking at and going, okay, we have God of War Ragnarok. First one just hit PC, so people are really energized all over again for this thing. We have the marketing for Modern Warfare 2. So we're going to get that Call of Duty boost again on an actual good Call of Duty game, unlike last year's situation. All right, we can do this. But you go into 2023, I think that discussion starts to look a little bit different very quickly. Uh, I agree. Again, it's tough to say that, you know, PlayStation's in dire straits, but they are definitely adapting. And there is far more pressure on PlayStation yep. this generation than last. Because let's, let's be real. If we're being brutally honest about PlayStation's competition with the PS4, it was the Wii U and it was the Xbox One. And sorry, just to be blunt, the, neither one of those performed, especially at launch, the way that anyone wanted them to. The Wii U was a huge flop. The Xbox One's messaging lost so much goodwill. So PlayStation had a super easy kickoff to that generation. They had a sweet couple of years where they were able just to gain momentum and they legitimately were able to become the, the, the gamer box, quote unquote, for lack mm -hmm. of a better phrase. And a lot of people just aligned their friend groups there. They aligned where they played there and they just 
ran with that momentum. And they and they did an amazing job putting out games that were exciting, compelling, and they just gained a tremendous amount of momentum based off the failings of their competition. This time around, we have Xbox in the Thunderdome going all out. We have Nintendo having this, this device that cannot be topped. And the first party output, again, I would challenge that, you know, PlayStation's sentiment is that it has the best first party games. If you're saying that you're not really paying attention to what Nintendo is putting out right now, because N Nintendo has reinvented themselves in a huge way. And not only do, does Nintendo have the value with the cheaper console, but they have compelling, amazing first party games. And even though the machine is less powerful, you can't really say that, oh, every single PlayStation game is just wildly better than Nintendo games. So right now, when we look at the broad scope of all of these three big players in the space, PlayStation does not have the leg up that it did last gen, really anywhere, not value because it was cheaper than the Xbox one first party output still strong. But again, there's way more competition from Nintendo. And once Xbox's first party output hits on the way that people want it to, when we start getting games like Starfield, they're going to be challenged on multiple fronts. Whereas last generation, they just weren't. And so, yeah, they are in a situation where there's no guaranteed success anymore. And that's making them reevaluate a lot of their strategies. And yep. I mean, that's gotta be scary as a business because as we've touched on previously, it is expensive as hell to make a video game, to make a God of War Ragnarok that takes five years. It is expensive. And that's how they tried to message the $70 saying, you know, it takes a long time, costs a lot of money. We want to make some of that back so we can invest it in more games, blah, blah, blah. However you feel as a customer, that's, that's totally up to you. But that is how PlayStation has messaged it. But this time around, Sam, PlayStation doesn't get a kickback and just ride 100 million console sales. No, no, and and that's the thing is like, you know, Nintendo right now and Xbox not right now, but in the future, like coming down the barrel, like they are going to have that putting pressure on them, and that's going to be very interesting because it's not going to be to me personally. That I'm going around my elbow to get to my thumb, but I promise there's a <laughs> here. Bear with me, y'all. With the Xbox One and the PS4, aside from PlayStation's great exclusives, it really just felt like, do you want the blue box or the green box? Like, that's what it, it was. It was the least differentiated the systems have ever been, in my opinion. And that's very boring to me as a consumer, as, you know, a journalist, as whatever. I think with this, with Microsoft finding their identity in terms of, you know, we're going to be the home of Call of Duty again. But also, more importantly than that to me, just emphasizing RPGs, emphasizing first-person shooters, emphasizing PC games. I think PlayStation is going to have to find its identity. It's like, okay, what actually are we? that we can appeal to. And that's interesting because that is a great make or break. And if they can come out on the other side, they'll be a lot stronger for it. I feel like in some ways, PlayStation is riding too heavily on its past successes. A lot of the biggest things about PlayStation's future, about the launch of the PS5, the reasons you should be excited about PlayStation 5 were Spider-Man, we're, we're God of War, we're Uncharted, we're The Last of Us, which again, huge, huge mm -hmm. franchise that they established last generation, but they are selling you on what PlayStation, what the PlayStation 4 was and how the PlayStation 5 is going to improve upon that. But as you said, I, I agree. I think they are struggling to find what their new identity is in this space when their competition has gotten their acts together, figured out how to compete, has found their identity 
Because I think in a lot of ways, Xbox and Nintendo have reinvented themselves in recent years. Oh, yeah. And Definitely. it makes it way more exciting. These conversations are way more exciting, regardless of where you, you fall in terms of preference for, for device or, sure. or title. The overall industry as a whole is just, it's interesting. It's fascinating because no one has the luxury of kicking back and being the top dog anymore. You, that is dead. That is gone. Everyone came out of the gate swinging. We have the Switch that's a success right now. What happens when the new Switch console comes out midway? And what happens when the new Switch console comes out midway, has Breath of the Wild 2 as a launch title, and PlayStation 5 just an, an announced a price increase? Like, how does PlayStation compete in that space? So it's going to be really, really interesting. Argued here with a super chat says they didn't increase the price in the U.S. for posterity and image and optics. History books will always look at the price in the U.S. dollar. Whenever whenever someone talks about price, they talk about the U.S. dollar. I mean, it's it's a good point. It's very true. It's like the PS5 is 500 U.S. dollars. It's like okay, that's a true statement. Just don't look any further at it. It's fair. So that's why we are seeing PlayStation shift their business. They are going to have more games as a service title, titles, which is going to mean more multiplayer. They are going to bring more titles to PC, which is going to increase the revenue. And if you right. are a PlayStation player primarily, you should be excited about that because what that allows PlayStation to do is invest that money into the games you love. Because when PlayStation comes out and says they are worried about the quality of their games taking a hit with a subscription service, that is not because it is impossible. That is because their current business model does not support it. And if they changed nothing and immediately had to shift to that, that would be the reality because they've invested years and years and hundreds of millions of dollars into these games, but they don't have that recurring revenue stream, which is why they bought Bungie and Bungie is remaining completely multi-platform. Bungie can publish anywhere that they want, but it is owned by PlayStation and PlayStation gets to kick back and say, that is a PlayStation published game and we are getting a sweet piece of that pie. Even if you're buying it on Xbox, we are still getting that money and we can use that money to keep making great games because the traditional box, the exclusive based on a box, that is dying honestly much quicker than I thought it would. I knew we were, it was going away, but we are at a point where that is just being propelled. The box exclusive, that is a terrible idea in this current market. It is the Blu-ray versus HD DVD is what that feels like. Just why on earth are we doing that? But ecosystem, platform exclusive, selling people on the subscription service, getting people invested in that because of your exclusive content. All right. That is way more compelling to a lot of consumers because as I touched on, if you want a PlayStation 5 and one game in some markets, $800. And the average person will never, ever, ever under any circumstances pay $800 to play video games. And if you don't have a substitute to that, you just, you, your, your audience will never grow. And that is why PlayStation is reevaluating a lot of things. Sam, before we move on to the next topic, anything else that you want to touch on regarding the PlayStation price increase, the console speculation regarding Xbox and Nintendo, anything else you want to touch on there? Just to sort of reiterate, I kind of I kind of sort of said this earlier, but I'll just reiterate it, make it a little clearer. I think it's going to be very interesting when or if they do reverse this next year, because like I said, I think I think this year is a done deal. I think this year that price increase is here to stay. But like 2023, what happens? Because 2023 is going to be fascinating to me. 
I don't know if you've been paying attention, Miles. I know you've been paying attention. There's a lot of games coming out in 2023. There's a lot of games, in fact. Potentially, ABK deal goes through. Microsoft is launching, I think, five first-party games in the first half of 2023. If that that's, pans out, that's what they're saying. Including Diablo 4. We'll see. We'll see. Delays always happen. Games get delayed all the time. There's all this other stuff. At the same time, potentially, you know, uh, Sony is going to have Marvel Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man has been hugely consistent. Final Fantasy 16 is going to be there. I, th I think in 2023 is where this discussion actually gets very interesting in terms of all the different factors at play. This year, we're just kind of annoyedly riding, riding out the storm, if yes. that makes any sense. Yeah, next year. Because again, let's, there are fair criticisms about Xbox's first-party output. There, there have been, there still are, even stuff like Halo Infinite, which was you know, very hyped on the Xbox side. It was an, uh, the first humongous Xbox Game Studios release, and it didn't deliver in the way that a lot of people wanted it to. And so that has, per so the questions about their output will persist until they have that game that just says, boom, here it is. Forza Horizon 5, love it, critically acclaimed. But I think with that being the, the racing game, an established in a, an established franchise, a lot of people just wrote that off, even though, again, it was one of the best reviewed games of the year. But in 2023, when all of these big companies are releasing huge games, highly anticipated games, that is going to be really interesting in terms of, all right, where are people aligning? What, what is, who is the platform that is gaining the least momentum and why? And then we can start breaking down all of the different strategies and how all of these strategies are panning out because everyone right now in the space has a unique strategy. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that, but we're going to be finding out real quick which strategies are working for the, for the mm -hmm. consumer. Got to give a huge shout out to the amazing people joining us live for Xbox Chatterdays. If you are digging the show, hit the like button, share it out. We're going to be talking a lot about games because another big chunk of news this week was Gamescom 2022, baby. We had opening night live. We had the future game showcase. We had Xbox doing a six hour gauntlet of Xbox related news and interviews. There was a lot of stuff shown this week. And a lot of us, as we touched on earlier, we're looking for the next big thing to play. We want some big games to play. And we saw a lot of games. Opening Night Live is where I want to start. And right. Jeff Keighley had two hours, two straight hours of video game announcements. He sure did. Gameplay and reveals. And so before we talk about some of our standouts, how did you feel about Opening Night Live overall? There were a lot of, I think, criticisms regarding Summer Game Fest this year. So I'm curious to hear how you felt about Opening Night Live. Better than Summer Game Fest in some ways. I think it had better variety much better variety in terms of what was shown. I mean, I love my space sci-fi horror, but my God, Summer Game Fest had a theme going. It was like, wow, okay, we are really putting these five similar tone games together. Okay, that's that sure is a thing. Um, I, I, think, I think this had a much better variety in terms of the types of games, the genres, all that sort of stuff, and good pacing in terms of, you know, a lot of the stuff, and then Jeff would talk a little bit and then, you know, keep on going, so all right. However, I think it could have been a little shorter. I do think two hours is just 
I, I don't know. Personally, I'm just very much getting to the point where two hours is like, you you got to have the content for it if it's two hours. If it's two hours, this is the only thing you're doing all year. You know, like if the Xbox and Bethesda show is two hours, like, all right, fine, I'll do it. But I'm not into it if, okay, you had Summer Game Fest as well, and we know you're going to have the Game Awards. I, I think it's stretching it a little bit. So be better in ways, but worse in ways. Yeah, because regardless of how you feel about Jeff Keighley's shows, the man is producing three big shows a year now. Summer Game Fest, Opening Night Live, and the Game Awards. And all of them are two hours. So it's, it's a lot, a lot to put on. I will say I felt the pacing of Opening Night Live was dramatically better than Summer Game Fest. Summer Game Fest had weird moments. We, we all memed The Rock and his Enjoy Your Gaming Black Adam trailer. That wasn't here. Nothing like that was anywhere to be found, which was so greatly appreciated. So, so greatly appreciated. Again, we didn't really have the meme moment, which is sad. There was no iconic meme to pull away from Opening Night Live. But that being said, the overall show was tight. Way less ads, way more streamlined. There was less awkward conversations between shows. And it was a lot of like, here's this game. Let's go. Here's this game. Let's go. And it was just back to back to back. It, we were covering it live and it was honestly hard to keep up because it was, I was writing yep. about one thing. And by the time I finished that one piece, there was like seven or eight things shown. I'm like, my God, my That's God. That's why the ultimate weapon is team. The ultimate <laughs> weapon is team. So Sam, what were some of your standouts from opening night live specifically? The games or announcements that really tickled your fancy. Okay. Uh, a few immediately off the top of my head. So look, I've talked about this game on here before. Spo I'm, next time you have me on, I'm going to talk about it again. And I'm going to, I will not shut up about it. Callisto Protocol. Oh my God. Just, just, just come on December 2nd. We're, we're getting there. We're all, it wasn't there. delayed like, because I was, was halfway expecting a delay announcement with the new nope. trailer. No, yeah, no, but like, no, they're committed. They're saying December 2nd, which by the way, fun fact about that. If that pans out and no delay announcement, I believe the Callisto Protocol will be one of only two non-Nintendo games released that uh, released this year, and not counting Call of Duty because Call of Duty is a yearly thing that was announced for 2022 and didn't get delayed. I'm, I'm dead serious. Or was not like a 2021 game that got delayed into 2022. Like it's this and a Plague Tale. They called their shot with 2022 and they're sticking with it. It's like, all right. Good right. work. Plague Tale's gone gold. So one of those is locked in. I need, I need Callisto to go gold. Please. In like October. Come on. Callisto, my most anticipated game for the remainder of this year, by I, far. I, I am not ready to believe that it's coming out until two weeks. Once we're two weeks away and there's been no delay announcement, I will fully unfurl my hype for that game. That's fair. But I, I've just been hurt one too many times this year, you know, and I just got to prepare myself because it's already, it's teetering on the edge of 2022. It is. It's, just, oh yeah. It, it's, it's on the yeah. edge. Yeah. It's rough. And with the holidays, it's not going to be a one week delay. If that game gets delayed beyond December 2nd, it's not coming this year. No. Mm -mm. So yeah, but, but I mean, God, it looks so good. God, it looks so good. Um, okay, so another big standout game for me, a game I'm not going to say too much about because I have a feeling that you're on the same track as I am and I want to hear your thoughts, but Lies of P. When you get past, when you get past the fact that this is a 
Pinocchio game. No, when just... you embrace the fact okay. this is a Pinocchio all right. game. All right. It looks good. Like, I know there there are Souls likes are a dime a dozen. There's so many, I don't want to say knockoffs that feels mean, but there's a lot of games that try to go for that without understanding it. Lies of P seems like it gets it. Lies of P seems like, no, we understand what made Bloodborne Bloodborne. And uh, hearing impressions from people who got to play it saying it is brutal and that it is fun and that the gameplay is good. Yeah, I'm I'm in. Yeah, right. because I I'm was sold on, on the premise when I first heard that there was going to be a Bloodborne inspired souls like set in the Pinocchio universe. I was like, even if this is a dumpster fire, stupid game, I'm playing it because, wow, that is such a concept for a video game. But like you said, the impressions from Gamescom have been very positive. People are talking about the polish, the performance, the overall gameplay feeling tight and responsive. And like you said, it gets what, what people love about Bloodborne because that was kind of my concern is mm -hmm. it's easy to rip off the art style of Bloodborne. And if I'm being honest, Liza P is ripping off the art style of Bloodborne in a lot, a lot, like not even subtly. And that's, you know, oh, that's it's fine. Obvious. Like if that obviously Bloodborne is a huge inspiration for that team. There is, there's no, they have been public about that. When people compare it to Bloodborne, they are stoked about it. So they get it. They really get it. So I'm happy to hear that they're paying that respect. And they are also trying to carve out their own niche without saying, I know people want Bloodborne at 60 FPS. So let's just do Pinocchio Bloodborne and see if that can fill the gap. But it sounds like it is going to be something great. And day one in Xbox Game Pass. Hey, yeah. Heck yeah. Doesn't have a release date just 2023 so mm -hmm. we'll see when we get it i feel like the fact that there's just saying 2023 tells me it's not early next year so yeah. well i i feel like it's much more of like a summer at earliest type thing but we'll see we'll see how it goes yeah still something to look forward to in 2023 and the fact that it is being played by people right now suggests that, that it, it won't sure. be too long although i did play crackdown 3 at e3 2017 <laughs> but but that is very much an exception and not the rule. That That is an exception, not the rule. We won't go down that We path. won't, yeah, yeah. That game. Uh, let's see. What else from Opening Night Live? Uh, this is kind of cheating because I already mentioned it earlier, hands-on, but uh, Homeworld 3 looks great. Like mm -hmm. We already talked about that, but that was part of the show, so I'll count that in there. And then what else? There was one more that kind of stuck out to me. Uh, that... Maybe it'll come back to me. You can go ahead right now. It's not coming to me right now. All right, so, so. you touched on a few of the big ones. The biggest okay. one for me, and I feel like if Jeff and I just grabbed some beers, we would just geek out about horror. I saved this hours. one for you. This is not the one I was thinking of. Okay. But I, I, I explicitly I've... saved this for you. But. Because guess who revealed Evil Dead the game to, to the world? Homie Jeff Keeley. And I will forever love Jeff for the show where he had Evil Dead, the game, and Elden Ring closing out the showcase. I will forever remember that moment because that was a miles as hell moment in video game history. And so Jeff Keighley comes out on stage and he's like, and now for a new gameplay reveal from a franchise you wouldn't expect. And so as soon as he said that, my brain started like racking about the possibilities. What's this going to be? A franchise I wouldn't expect. And then it cuts to the intro and it kind of looks like Back to the Future. You see yeah. the Michael J. Fox esque kid rocking out on the guitar. You're like, Back to the Future, they've already done that. That's not one I wouldn't expect. 
And then things take a dramatic turn when the kid goes downstairs and answers the door. And it's the killer clowns from outer space, the game. What on earth? If you gave me 100 guesses of franchises that would be converted into a video game in the year 2023, not a single one of them would be killer clowns from outer space. Mm -hmm. But that reveal so good was so stoked not only did we get the reveal we saw gameplay it's a weird asymmetrical horror game it's 10 players by the way i looked into the details about it three people are the clowns and there's seven survivors trying to stop the alien invasion but if you've seen the movie they showed the clowns wrapping up the kids in the cotton candy pods and throwing them over their shoulders They, they showed the guns man that was a reveal i never would have expected and as a big 80s horror nerd as a big horror nerd in general but someone with a fascination for cult horror oh baby that was that was the announcement of the show for this guy yeah i i killer clowns from outer space is like it it, i mean it is the definition of a cult classic make no mistake it's not well known it's not well beloved i tend i love it and i tend to forget about it from time to time it's not something that comes to the forefront of your mind but yeah i mean no matter how the game turns out, we got to try it. We oh, got to try that. thing. Unquestionably. I remember when Evil Dead, the game was announced and I was excited about it. And I saw people on my timeline say, what's Evil Dead? And that hurt because I felt like Evil Dead was, even though it is a cult franchise, it's still fairly well known. Yeah. Yeah. But Killer Clowns from Outer Space, that is, like you said, as cult as it gets. Like You people- can't blame someone for not knowing that one. That's... <laughs> Like, that's one I feel like people know more from a T-shirt than they would that it's an actual piece of property that exists that you can watch. So yeah, yeah. if you haven't watched it and if you're a horror fan and you want something just unbelievably weird, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, take some time this weekend to check it out. Such a good movie. Gets you in the mood for that game, which is coming early 2023. Please uh, tell me I can play as the tiny clown and, like, punch a guy's head off. Please. I hope so. Please. They, they haven't shown, but their Twitter account's been having some fun. So somebody did fan art of like one of the clowns as the Giga Chad with the huge chiseled chin. And then the, the account basically retweeted and said, should we do this as a skin? What do you, what do you guys think? And everyone's like, yeah, do it, do it as a skin. And then they followed up with, okay, we talked to the game director. He likes the idea. So I think we're going to do a Giga Chad clown skin. So they're ready to be weird. They're ready to embrace what this is what this could be and just be stupid with it which it needs to be stupid the premise i'm sorry as much as i love it the premise for a killer clowns from outer space game is stupid but let's go let's go oh so good how did you feel about the dead island 2 re-reveal because i gotta say it was leaked and jeff's had an unfortunate track record where his big finales are leaking um but that being said I was really impressed by what we saw of Dead Island 2. It is looking a lot better than I would have expected. Obviously, it was a heavily edited trailer, but it did show some sure. gameplay, showed some gore, showed the new setting. It showed a uncanny Lenny Kravitz ripoff, like to the point where I feel like Lenny Kravitz could sue and win if he wanted to. Because <laughs> that lead character in that trailer, that was like 2004 era Lenny Kravitz to the T. How did you feel about it? Because I left really interested in Dead Island 2. Not as high as you, but I'm interested. 
I mean, obviously there's a level of interest just because of how far this thing has been delayed. I mean, when it comes out, it's going to be nine years after it was revealed. Assuming it's like, you know, April, May, whatever. Like, nine years! Okay, it cha it's changed hands back and forth. There's been drama, there's been nonsense. Like, it definitely is one of those games you thought was just going to die. That you just thought it, it wasn't going to come out. Uh, before the leaks happened, shortly before the show. So, I'm interested. I definitely need to see, like, what sets it apart, right? Yeah. Like, okay, what at the end of the day is going to be making it so I should play this game instead of finally playing Dying Light 2? Or instead of playing one of the other zombie games out there? Like, I do... I don't see a lot of strong identity right now. And just to be blunt, this may ruffle some feathers. I'm also not one of the people who love the original Dead Island. I, I don't. To me, Dying Light was way better. Techland did a much better job uh, with Dying Light 2. So, I'm, well, with Dying Light, with the original Dying Light that I played, not Dying Light 2. I haven't played that one yet. So, we'll see. I'm curious about it, for sure. I'm curious, because I, I really liked Dead Island 1. It had some jank to it. It wasn't a huge, big-budget title. But it was, to me, it was pretty much Fallout if it was multiplayer with zombies. And at that time, coming off of the back of Fallout 3, that's exactly what I wanted. And that's exactly what my friend group wanted. And it was a really solid co-op RPG with a wacky zombie setting. Shout out to Sam B. Things that go bump in the night. Absolute banger. Absolute slap and track. Uh, who do you voodoo, baby? Let's go. Sam B. Throw some respect on the greatest artist in hip-hop. <laughs> So I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for zombie killing to be cool again. There was a period in the Xbox 360 era where it was just every game that came out was a zombie game and people got really sick of it. And then no one did zombie games for an extended period of time. And I feel like with Back for Blood, with Dead Island 2, we're, we're getting back to that in some ways. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready for it. Will they live up to the glory of their predecessors? Who knows? But I went from... Even after the leak, I was expecting nothing from that Dead Island 2 showing. I was expecting to feel absolutely nothing about Dead Island 2. And I walked away feeling excited. So, good showing. Good showing. How are you feeling about Gotham Knights? Weird. Same. Gotham Knights is a game that I was really into the first time I saw it. And then every single time I've seen this game after that, it's very hard to put into words, but it's felt like something is off. It's felt like there's just there's something that's not clicking into place, and I'm not sure what it is. I don't hate the gameplay the way other people have said. Like, I think the gameplay personally to me looks fine. I like the idea of playing it in co-op with a friend. I don't... I don't know. It's it's it really is another game that I'm going to need to see the reviews. I'm going to need to see how this pans out at launch because something isn't clicking into place, even though this should be something I'd be all fired up on all cylinders for, with, you know, being the Court of Owls, being the Bat family. But something's off. I know a lot of people are very excited about this again because we we want that big triple A game. And a lot of us love the Arkham series, Batman Arkham Asylum. When that came out, in my opinion, that was the best superhero game, superhero game that had ever been made. Adored Arkham Asylum, loved Arkham City as well. That being said, I have not liked any of the showings of Gotham Knights so far in the way that I thought I would, hearing that this is a, a co-op Arkham game. But... 
the last trailer that we saw at Gamescom was the first one where I was actually excited about what we saw. Seeing Clayface, seeing Harley Quinn, seeing Mr. Freeze. Clayface in particular, I thought looked really impressive. The way that he gurgled and flowed and there was this really disgusting sense of just dread about this character. Loved that showing. It got me excited about the villains that we'd be fighting because a common complaint I have with superhero games, Marvel's Avengers, etc., is, you know, you're just beating up street thugs or you're beating up robots. And to mm-hmm. me, after a certain period of time, that just gets boring. So I need to have the big baddie. I need to have the, the carrot at the end of the stick dangled, dangling there. So when I beat 500 guys in hoodies, I have a payoff. So to see the big bosses that you're going to potentially fight in this and to see them look really impressive, that got me way more excited. And so this was, like I said, the first showing of Gotham Knights where I was, I was excited. I was, I was talking to a buddy about, all right, dude, are we going to... Are we going to shell out the 70 bucks for this? Because again, this is another $70 game. Mm-hmm. Blisto Protocol, $70 game. Oh, I've got no problem shelling the 70 on that. Yeah, that's yeah, day one. <laughs> no day issues. one paying 70 for that. But Gotham Knights, that's one where I got to debate and say, all right, right. Are, we, are we doing this? Are you committing? Are we spending a combined of $140 to play Gotham Knights? And so we're at, right now we're at a maybe. We're at a solid maybe with Gotham Knights, which... Two months ago, I would have told you no, hard no, mm-hmm. no. You know, the, the the marketing is, you know, dwindling me down a little bit. Um, and then one final announcement I want to talk about that <laughs> was just weird, it was just uh, unnecessary. But they announced the Pokemon Mini Aceman. Jeff Keeley's like, and here's something a little different. And then they had a. Pokemon, a Bulbasaur-colored mini Aceman on stage, and they showed off how Pikachu is digitally in the steering wheel, and they showed that you can, like, link and play Pokemon games from this mini, and it was dumb. It was nonsensical. I showed my wife, and I was like, hey, I found our next car. And she hit me with <laughs> a hard no, so I don't think she's signing off on the Pokemon mini Aceman, but the fact that it exists... It's just, uh, that is the most frivolous crossover I can imagine. A video game themed, this is a luxury car. Like this is a luxury electric vehicle that is Pokemon themed. Woo! I haven't looked how much it costs. I don't know if they've posted it, but it ain't going to be cheap. So, oh no. Many, if you're listening, I would happily take a review unit to test out, but. Uh, are you, uh, were you excited to see the Pokemon mini Aceman on the stage at opening night live? I found it funny and stupid, but no, <laughs> that was the closest thing. I think we got to a meme moment. Well, didn't yes. quite hit, hit the bar, but yeah, we, that was the closest. If there was like a funny personality there, maybe, but it was just, here's the car. Here's some cool features and they moved on too quick. So we didn't get the meme, but it was amazing that it exists. And that was part of Jeff Keighley's show. All right. Some other game showcases that happened this week. We had the future game show and the Xbox Gamescom showcase. Um, did you watch the future showcase? I know Windows Central is owned by future in case you didn't know. So we yep. are legally obligated to watch the future game show. So we, we both watched it. Locked it was behind. a show. It was a show. Any standouts for you there? There was a couple uh, for me that I actually was really impressed to see and had really good showings, but I'm curious to hear if there's anything that stood out for you. 
Yeah, two things. So one, uh, the last case of Benedict Fox still looks yes. really good. It yes. looks really, really good. I'm all for it. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Looks great. And then uh, System Shock, the remake, shaping up real nicely. That thing, that thing looks good. It really looks like it's building. And it's hard to say building on the art direction. I think more like giving it a proper art direction because of just how far removed it is from the original System Shock when that came out. Looks good. Hearing Shodan's voice is like, come on. G g give me that release date. Didn't give me the release date. Still coming soon. So I'm like, all right. All right. Okay. We'll see what that means. But System good. Shock looks so good. I've never even played the original. I don't know if I lose gamer cred for that, but I've never played the original. No, I mean, System I haven't Shock. either. Two, um, yes, but not, not the original. But I know it was a huge influence to Bioshock, and I know that it's got this passionate following but I love the merger of the weird kind of saturated pixel art and 3D models mm -hmm. and the overall tone and style and substance that they showed in that trailer was was so good. It's such a strong, strong showing for System Shock. And again, we didn't get the release date, but I am, I'm ready for that. That looks so, so cool. Um, for me, one that has kind of slowly been creeping up to me and I've seen it pop up repeatedly is a game called The Chant. And it, it is a basically cult-inspired horror game. And you use supernatural abilities and like prayers as a means of attacking and fighting demons. So you have a smudge stick that you use to like wave and do attacks. And the latest trailer that they showed off showed a huge array of monsters. There was these giant frogs. There was a lot of creepy demons. And so it really looks to be a lot more involved than what I originally expected. I expected a weird overarching narrative, but they really showed some like RPG mechanics and a really interesting combat system. And so the chant has kind of quickly climbed up my anticipated list because of how unique it looks. And it reminds me of something that like a double A game from the Xbox 360 generation that had a lot of the cool demons and monsters. So that's coming out in 2022, supposedly. So I'm, I'm curious to check that out. Um, another one that was cool to see finally after I'm just, we've seen them blowing up on Twitter for months and months, but they have finally confirmed that hypercharge unboxed is coming to Xbox. Finally, they've been telling you to go sign up for the Xbox version on Twitter for months and months and months. The trailer, I was a little annoyed that it was just sign up to play it on Xbox as, as part of the trailer, but we got confirmation that it is coming to Xbox. And that game looks so fun. I've played it on Steam, or I played the demo, I should say, on Steam. I didn't buy it on Steam back when it first launched in early access. And it looks like it's come so far since then. So definitely excited for that one as well. The Xbox Gamescom Showcase, Sam, it was six hours. So I'm not going to lie to you. I did not watch the entirety of it. Nope. I'm sorry, but please. I love you, Xbox. Don't ever make me sit through a six-hour showcase for anything, because I won't. I, I had a lot of cool interviews. I had a lot of cool context for games coming out, um, but it was six hours. You were complaining about a two-hour opening night live show. Multiply that by three, baby. And I get, I get. To be, to be fair, it wasn't a true showcase. It was I like know. we're streaming for six hours. Yes, a little exactly. different. Exactly. So. There were some interesting developments. We got the release date for Pentiment, which is coming November 15th. We got some yes. insights into Grounded 1.0. They launched a new release date, or not a release date, but a new update that mm -hmm. tests some of the like the shared save feature. Um, 
Minecraft Legends. That is actually looking really cool. Mm -hmm. Really impressed by that showing. Um, Gunfire Reborn as well. I have. I bought that on PC. That is one to watch out for. Coming in October, launching Xbox Game Pass. If you love Risk of Rain 2. This is first person Risk of Rain 2. Such a good game. High on life gameplay. Point of controversy, Sam. How are you feeling about the high on life gameplay that we've seen at Gamescom? It was definitely weaker than what we saw at the Xbox show, is what I'll say. Like, I definitely think it was weaker. I think the Xbox show was a better showing. However, I will also clarify here, I'm not the best person to judge for this because I I don't like Rick and Morty. Honestly, I just, I don't like Rick and Morty. I have no hate. Szechuan sauce. No, Pickle Rick. Oh God, oh God almighty. Uh, <laughs> but uh, like, it just, I don't have any hate. It just, I don't, I, I don't like it. That, that style of humor, those intonations, those voices have never really worked with me. They've never worked for me. So for me, the fact that I was interested in High on Life at all the first time I saw it was just because of how cool the game looked and how weird the guns are. This was weaker, but I'm not going to write it off entirely. That's, that's, how, that's where I'm at. I think it was just a weird decision. I didn't even think the gameplay looked bad. I think it was just weird to have a full boss fight because clearly yes. the boss fight was a little bullet spongy. So it was an extended period of time where it was just us watching him, watching this out of context boss fight for the game. Whereas the the last show and we got a good spread of different locations and, and all of that. So I don't think it was a bad showing per se. I think it was a strange choice to, to show just that full boss fight in its entirety. But I guess it also gives you a better idea of what to expect from, from the shooting mechanics. Uh, I really like the weird whip. You, that, that sequence where you're whipping around the arena with the boss fight. Um, people are unsure about the comedy. Again, we talked about this earlier in the show, but comedy in video games is is really hard. And people have been very harsh on some of the, the comedy sequences we've seen from High on Life. So I'm curious to see how that lands with the community as well. Because I remember back in the day, Borderlands 1 and 2 being hilarious. Genuinely Laugh out loud, hilarious. Again, I was a lot younger. It was a different era in gaming, but I remember those games being funny. In recent years, I played Borderlands 3. Did not like the humor. Did not really enjoy a lot of the jokes. And I was like, I don't remember Borderlands 2 being like this. Are they just... I felt like they were trying too hard to cash in on what Borderlands was instead of writing new material. And maybe that's why I was jaded towards it. But that was one game where... It wanted to be funny, and I didn't really find it all that funny. So again, high on life. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a struggle to sell people on the jokes. I think Justin Roiland can do it. I think he's a funny dude generally, even though if I, I don't love Rick and Morty. I, 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 have, I appreciated the first few seasons of Rick and Morty for being very dark, being very nihilistic, being unafraid to touch on really dark things. Um less enthused about pickle rick but <laughs> i don't know maybe i'm just getting old and bitter but yeah, i'm still excited yeah. high in life again still one of my most anticipated games even after that showing anything else from the xbox GameCom showcase that you feel like shouting out or that was exciting to you no just uh i'm really happy pentiment is definitely november 15th like we talked about before but that that is a very weird game but i i love obsidian i love josh sawyer's writing work so i'm all in on it and again impressions for that are very positive as well yes. it seems like if you like obsidian style 
of drama comedy fusion. Seems like Pentiment is going to be delivering that. It's got the kind of murder mystery vibe, obviously set mm -hmm. in a different period of time, but I am really interested to see how that pans out. And again, I like that Xbox is willing to put out these smaller titles. Again, full price for Pentiment's 20 bucks. And I don't think that means it's a bad game or people should write it off as something not worth their time. I am really grateful that Xbox is willing to allow these teams to experiment outside of the typical AAA wheelhouse, because that is usually how we get the interesting ideas that can be iterated on on a bigger scale. And Sam, I think that is going to do it for this week's episode of Xbox Chatterdays. Huge shout out to all the amazing people who joined us live and all the lovely folks listening on audio services. One more time, let everyone know who you are, or I guess let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah, so as always, I'm Sam Talbert. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's just my username is my name, at Samuel Talbert, T-O-L-B-E-R-T. -E nice and easy. And uh, yeah, when I'm not playing stuff, I'm writing stuff over on Windows Central and sister sites. And we've had plenty of cool stuff come out over Gamescom. And things are a little quiet, but they're going to uh, kick up again in October. You know, so we'll see what happens before then. Mm -hmm. could, could always be some surprises. You never know. You, you never know. We got a little lull, but yeah, things are going to get real busy starting October and then going into early 2023. Good luck and Godspeed to all the gamers around the world who are trying to buy and find time to play the 500 AAA games that are going to release in February and March of 2023. Mm -hmm. And with that, have an amazing weekend, everyone, and we will catch you next week. Take care. Bye, y'all.